Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. The rest of you, please open your Bibles to the book of Micah in the Old Testament, the book of Micah. If you did not bring a Bible with you, there is a paperback Bible underneath one of the chairs in front of you, <clears throat> and you can grab that Bible and open to page 454, which is where our passage is found, Micah chapter 5. We'll be looking at just the first few verses of this book. president of the Michigan Savings Bank, not sure the person's name, but this person said, it's recorded as having said, the horse is here to stay, but the automobile is only a novelty, a fad, back in 1903. Daryl Zanuck, movie producer for 20th Century Fox, recorded as saying this, television won't last because people will soon get tired of staring at a plywood box every night. 1945. <clears throat> a writer for Variety magazine on rock and roll music. It'll be gone by June in 1955. <laughs> Some pretty poor predictions, right? I mean, we could go on and on and find other examples of people who attempted to say something about the future and were woefully wrong. I think we can all identify with how difficult it is to anticipate what's going to happen in the future. I mean, just think of how hard it is just to even follow weather forecasts. And sometimes they're right, often they're wrong. Uh, we often joke about the weather forecasters being able to be wrong 50% of the time and you keep their job. What other job is like that? Now, I wouldn't want to be a weather forecaster. I'm sure there's difficulties there that make that profession particularly challenging, but we know how hard it is to know what's going to happen even tomorrow, even this afternoon when it comes to the weather. Predicting sports scores, you know, sometimes people get into this habit of trying to predict the outcome of games or scores of games. It's, it's impossible to do. Even the experts, even the people who spend their lives studying sports and following sports cannot predict the outcome of games. Uh, this whole thing about the future, what's ahead of us, can produce a lot of anxiety, isn't it? Because we don't know what's going to happen. Again, even this afternoon, much less next week, next year or 10 years from now, and we wonder, we find ourselves wondering sometimes, maybe late at night when we're alone with our thoughts, what's going to happen to me? Where will I wind up? How will I die? Where will I be living at the end of my life? Will I be with people? Will I be alone? What's going to happen to me? And we don't know. We don't know. The future seems unsettled to us, and that can create worry and fear. Well, we're going to talk about that a little bit as we continue through our sermon series called Route 66, as Gary so helpfully reminded us of. Yes, it is true. We are working our way through the Bible, one sermon per Bible book. We started in, Gen uh, in um, Genesis, moving forward to Revelation, and we are in the portion of Scripture that is called the Minor Prophets, and this is the sixth of 12 minor prophets, so we're about halfway done with the minor prophets, and when we get done with the minor prophets, we'll be done with the Old Testament. 
and we'll move on to the New Testament. But uh, as is our custom, let's just see a little background information about this book called Micah. Uh, definitely a lesser known book. Last week we did Jonah, a minor prophet that many people know about. Probably not many of you know a lot about Micah. This prophet wrote in the years 738 to 698 BC. So 700 or so years before the coming of Christ. I haven't shown you our little charts here in a while. I know that's very uh, small print, but um, Micah preached during the reigns of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. So that would be right here. These were kings in Judah. Uh, Felix, during the Discipleship Hour class, was talking about the division of the kingdoms uh, this morning. So there's Israel in the north, Judah in the south. Each section has their kings, various kings. And God would send prophets to preach to these kings, particularly when things got morally really out of hand. And Micah was preaching during this time. He was a contemporary of Isaiah. Isaiah and Micah preaching about the same time. Um, we can see that through uh, this next chart. Very often we think of the prophets in relation to the exile. So that was the time when Assyria, in one case Babylon, uh, Babylon in another, came and took God's people and exiled them. So I was just talking to the kids about the return to Jerusalem. That was after the exile. But generally we think of the prophets in their relationship <laughs> to the exile. So we have uh, prophets before the exile, pre-exilic. If you want to sound really smart and intelligent around people, you can say the pre-exilic prophets. Um, prophets who preached during the exile and those who preached after the exile, post-exilic prophets. And you'll see Micah right here next to Isaiah preaching before the exile. Um, not really much in the way of any significant events in Micah. He, he's just more preaching, not really describing things that have happened. <coughs> and uh, the theme is uh, God's commitment to preserving a remnant of people, of faithful people to himself. And this um, theme of judgment and forgiveness, where the book kind of moves back and forth between God threatening this judgment, but then also promising pardon and grace and forgiveness. And um, there's kind of an ebb and flow, back and forth turn um, throughout the book. Today we're going to be looking at Micah <clears throat> chapter 5. And so a, a few things have happened here in the preceding chapters. And that is that God has been telling the people of God how much they have been in sin in various ways. In, in ways that would just be shocking. That is uh, that uh, idolatry was taking place. Prostitution was taking place place. There was various instances of oppression and injustice. And in particular, Micah is concerned with the leaders of God's people who had fallen into various forms of sin. They were accepting bribes. These leaders responsible for teaching God's word were teaching divination, which is like an occultic practice. And they were doing it for money, taking money to teach occultic practices to God's people. That's what was going on. And their practices summed up in chapter 3, verse 2. They hate good and love evil, the leaders of God's people. So it's a bad time among God's people. And Micah comes in, and starting here in chapter 5, he gives some hope. There's a glimmer of hope because something's going to happen one day that's going to change this negative state of affairs. And that's the passage we're going to read 
right now. So let's stand for the reading of God's word, Micah chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Micah 5, 1 through 5. God says this through the prophets, Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose origin is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. God, we pray and plead by your Holy Spirit, open our hearts and minds to behold the truth of your word now. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You can be seated. Um, Last week we recovered pretty much the entire book of Jonah. Uh, Today we're going to do it a little different. We're really just going to focus on a couple of verses here, really just verses 1 and 2 because there is so much uh, in these two verses for us to learn. But the first thing I want us to look at here is the prediction that Micah makes. There's a prediction here, isn't there, about the future. So here's how it starts. In verse 1, there's this charge to the people of God. Muster your troops, O daughter of troops. That is, get ready. Something is about to happen. That is, a siege is laid against us. That is, an enemy force is coming, and they are going to invade. And this is something that God has been threatening through the prophets for a long time. There's these enemy nations who are going to come and bring judgment upon my people, God says over and over again. And so here we have it in verse 1. And then there is this phrase here where he says, with a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. So the word judge here is just referring to a ruler, to a leader of the people, as I mentioned just a moment ago, a moment ago, and saying that this enemy nation with a rod, they're going to strike the leader in the cheek. Now, that would be insulting in any culture, but in that culture in particular, that was a form of very serious humiliation to strike anybody in the cheek. And what Micah is saying is that this is what's going to happen to the rulers of Israel. They're going to be humiliated. Not only is there going to be this invasion, but the leaders are going to be embarrassed. And rightfully so, because they have been encouraging so much evil and rebellion against God. And so that's kind of the context. And then that leads to verse 2, where Micah then makes a prediction. And he says, something's going to happen that from this place called Bethlehem, one day in the future, somebody's going to rise up. There's going to be a ruler who's going to come up from that town. And he's going to be a very unique and a very unusual ruler. And God is saying, take hope. One day somebody's going to come. And he is going to be unlike any other ruler that you've ever seen before. And we'll learn more about what makes this ruler unique. But but what we have here is what we'll call a messianic prophecy. 
This is a prophecy in the Old Testament about the coming Messiah. Now, you might have wondered as we've been going through all these prophets, when is he going to talk about the Messianic prophecies? Because they're here, and they're some of the most exciting and interesting aspects of the prophets to cover. But if we could just pause for a moment, I'd like to make just some remarks about prophecy and the way prophecy works, because there's a common view of prophecy when we look at Old Testament prophecy, which, which, which encourages people to look to these prophets as if they're kind of like fortune cookies. You know? Like in these prophets, there are these predictions about these specific things that are going to happen to us personally, or that in these prophets, there are predictions about things that are going to happen in our day and age throughout the world, you know, politically or culturally or nationally. And, you know, there are people who read the prophets constantly for that purpose, looking, kind of seeking to decipher, like, what is this prophet saying about Russia? You know, what is this prophet predicting about, you know, 20 years ago, Y2K? How are these things being anticipated through the prophets? You might remember, for those of you who are about my age anyway, years ago, that there were a lot of Christians who were convinced that Mikhail... Gorbachev, the leader of the Soviet Union, was the Antichrist. Do you remember that? <clears throat> because a lot of people read into these prophets and they thought that the prophets were saying certain things about the Soviet Union. And Mikhail Gorbachev appeared once with a big birthmark on his head. <laughs> you know, sometimes he, he was pictured without it. I guess he used makeup to cover it up. And sometimes you'd see it and they would say, see, it's the mark of the beast. Mikhail Gorbachev is the Antichrist. There are a lot of Christians who, who believe that. And, and they thought that the prophets were predicting this kind of thing. More often than not, friends, <clears throat> when we look at the prophets, what you have to understand is that the prophets are more often looking backward rather than forward, quite frankly. What the prophets are doing is calling the people of God back to obedience to the law of God that had been given to Moses hundreds of years before. The problem was that God's people had neglected and dismissed what God had commanded them through the Torah. And so God is coming through the prophets and saying, remember what God said. This is the law of God. You need to go back. You need to obey what God has said in the past. Very often, most often, I think I can say, that's what the prophets are talking about. But there are also occasions when the prophets are predicting something in the future. But even when they're talking about future events, they're talking about the events of their day. They're talking about what the Assyrians are going to do and what the Babylonians are going to do and what the Persians are going to do. Those were the nations that would be equivalent today to the United States and, and China and, and Russia, you know, the major world players on the stage today. But what the prophets were often talking about was things that were going to happen in their particular day. And so uh, Michael Williams, one of my professors at Covenant Seminary, wrote this in one of his books. He says, the future that the prophets have in mind is usually the immediate future. The future from the standpoint of the prophets' contemporaries. Thus, the, most, uh, the vast majority of the prophetic future is actually... Our past, less than 5% of the oracles of the prophets deal with what is for us still future. 
So you can see how there's a bit of a misreading, I think, of the prophets going on when people are looking to the prophets to try to figure out what it's saying about geopolitical issues in the year 2019, probably reading a little too much into the prophets. So that, that's just by way of disclaimer. And then at the same time, at the same time, we do have from time to time these messianic prophecies, these statements that we find like this that are saying something about what is going to happen in the distant future, distant to the prophets, but in many cases still past for us. But beyond their contemporary situation, something distant to the future. And that's what we're seeing here in Micah chapter 5. And in fact, we see it in many places throughout the Old Testament, mostly in the prophets. And these prophecies have to do with certain details that are going to be true about the coming Messiah. They're saying the Messiah is going to have certain characteristics. And when he comes, and of course the prophets had no idea exactly when he would come. They didn't know if it would be next week or if it would be 100 years from now or 10,000 years. They didn't know. It turns out in this case, in Micah, about 700 years later, this would be fulfilled. But as we look throughout the scriptures, we see a number of prophecies. For instance, Isaiah 7, the prophet says that this Messiah will be born of a virgin. A very distinctive thing, right? I mean, who would have guessed that? A very specific detail. Isaiah 53 says that this Messiah is going to be one who is a suffering servant. You know, he would be a king, and so in Israel's mind, they were expecting a triumphant ruler, and Isaiah is saying, yeah, but, you know, he will be that, but he's also going to be a, a suffering servant, a servant, a king, but a servant, and one who suffers. That defies a lot of people's expectations at the time about what the Messiah would be like. Daniel chapter 7 talks about the Messiah who will be called the Son of Man. Psalm 22, not a prophet, I understand, but in Psalm 22, there is a prophecy about how the Messiah will die by crucifixion, which is very interesting because crucifixion wasn't practiced at the time that Psalm 22 was written. But hundreds of years later, it would be the common tool used by the Romans to kill criminals, and that's prophesied about the Messiah. Zechariah 9, another prophet, says that this Messiah there will be a time when he's going to enter Jerusalem on a donkey. I mean, talk about, you know, just an odd, specific detail that you just really wouldn't dream up. Um, and yet the prophet said this is the way it's going to be. And now in Micah 5, what we have here is a prophecy about the birthplace of the Messiah. Seven, eight hundred years prior to the coming of the Messiah, what Micah says is that this Messiah is going to be born in a particular place. And we find that this is exactly what happens. And you know the story. This is like Christmas in August here. You know the story from Matthew chapter 2. There was Herod, the great king, who had heard that the Messiah, the Christ, was born. And so he began asking questions uh, about who, who is this person. And it says, when Herod had called together all the people's chief priests, he called all the Jewish leaders together and the teachers of the law, and he asked them, where was the Messiah to, to be born? See, Herod is thinking, this Jesus person, I wonder if it's the Messiah. These Jews probably know because I bet there's a prophecy about his birthplace. So what do the prophets say about where he's supposed to be born? And the Jews answer and they say, in Bethlehem in Judea, they replied. For this is what the prophet Micah, 
I inserted that just so you know. This is what the prophet Micah has written. And then from there, he quotes the passage I just read to you. Micah chapter 5, verses 1 through 2. So this was the expectation of the Jewish leaders. That Micah 5, 1 through 2 was predicting a future event where a Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And it came true. Just as all those other prophecies came true. Jesus came and he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. Not a horse, but on a donkey to fulfill the prophecy. So when we read the prophets, we, we're not supposed to look at every single little political cultural detail and see how they're predicted. But there are things that are remarkably and amazingly predicted in the prophets about the coming Messiah. Because God knows the future. He not only knows the future, but he has planned the future. This is why he can do that. It's not like God's looking into the future to see what has randomly happened. No, God has ordained it to happen this way. He knows the future because he planned the future. And that means your future too. God is in charge of your future. He knows everything about your future. He's, he's already planned it. The scripture says all the days written for you were written in his book before one of them came to be. All of your days are written in God's book. He's planned every single detail. He's not surprised by the things that, that have happened to you. Even this past week, you're perplexed by certain things that have happened. It's a surprise to you. It's not a surprise to God. God planned it that way. He's sovereign. He's in charge. He's written the future. He declares the end from the beginning. This is what distinguishes God from all other claims to deity. We'll see this in other places in the Old Testament where the prophets will say, you look at these other prophets and, and if they say something about the future and it doesn't come true, you can know that they're a false prophet and you ought to stone them to death. But when someone predicts the future and it comes true, wow, you better listen. You better pay attention to that. And that's what's happening through these messianic prophecies. But this is a God that you can trust with your future. This is a God you can rest in what he has planned for you. He hasn't told you what it's going to be, I know, and that does bring some uncertainty, but what brings comfort, or what should bring comfort to you is knowing that your future is not some random accident. The things that are going to come to you today and this week and next month and next year are planned in God's love and wisdom and grace towards you. And even as we look at the world and we see all the things happening in the world, we can realize God has written these things into his plan. There's a purpose for these things. He's not surprised that the Dow plunged by 600 points on Friday. He's not surprised that Donald Trump is president. He's not even surprised that Andrew Luck retired yesterday. He's not surprised by that. He has planned these things. Your future is secure in the hands of this God who can work through a prophet and give us all of these details about what a Messiah would be like and that they would all come true, including his birth in Bethlehem. So let's go to the next thing and consider this place. <clears throat> what is this place like, Bethlehem? Bethlehem. Mentioned in verse 2, it says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, that's just a way of distinguishing this Bethlehem from another Bethlehem. There were two Bethlehems. It would be kind of like saying Springfield, Missouri versus Springfield, Illinois. Both Springfield, but different places. And um, that's what this prophecy is about. Bethlehem as a city still stands. Here's a picture of modern-day 
Bethlehem. <clears throat> uh, the church of the nativity is built there in Bethlehem in about the 6th century. It attracts a, a, a lot of visitors. And so maybe some of you have been to Bethlehem, have visited that place. Um, there are two things to note about the city or the town of Bethlehem in, in this prophecy. And the first one is this, <clears throat> that Bethlehem was a small place. Small place, very clear, right? It says in verse 2, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. You know, during Christmas we sing the song, O little town of Bethlehem. That's not just a cute way of talking about Bethlehem. It's a literal description. Bethlehem was little. It was small. And the phrase here says that um, too small to be among the clans of Judah. That, that's a reference to Joshua chapter 15, where we see the description of God's people as they're moving into the promised land. And you have 12 tribes of Israel, and there were allotments given to each tribe, a number of cities that were given to each tribe of Israel. In Joshua 15, it's the list of cities given to Judah. And it's a huge list. I mean, just turn to your Bible sometime to Joshua 15. I mean, it's one of the most boring passages in the Bible, quite frankly, because it's just a big list of cities. All of these cities listed, except for Bethlehem. Bethlehem's not listed. It's too little to be listed. That's what Micah is saying here. It's too small. You know, sometimes we use this phrase of, you know, being on the map. You know, if you look at a map and maybe you look for your hometown, if it was a small town, it might not be on the map. If a town is not written on a map, the, the idea there is that it wasn't significant enough to be on the map. But if something great happens in your city, you say, ah, that put us on the map. In other words, that thing happened, it gave significance to our city. It doesn't mean just literally you're on the map. It means we're something now. We're a town that people want to pay attention to. We're a town that people might want to visit. We're a town that people might want to write about because this thing happened. Bethlehem was not on the map. <laughs> there was nothing to draw anybody to it. And it's remarkable to see what Micah is predicting here. And this is the place where the Messiah is going to come from. Not New York City, not Hollywood, not Washington, D.C., not Beijing, not London, not Paris, not Rome, not Jerusalem. I mean, that's what you'd expect, right? The Messiah is going to come from Jerusalem. Nope. The Messiah is coming from little, tiny, sad little Bethlehem. That leads us to the second thing about Bethlehem is that it wasn't just a small place, it was a sad place. Bethlehem was a sad place. Here's why. Uh, if, again, going back into the Old Testament in the book of Judges, the, ju uh, the book of Judges is about a time when there was no king in Israel. Everybody did what was right in their own eyes. Judges is one of the most creepy books in the Bible because of all the various sins that happened. And the book ends with this story of a woman who is raped and killed, gang raped actually, and killed. And um, a, a religious leader cuts up her body into pieces. Do you remember the story? Sends it all over the, the nation. And the people say, nothing like this has ever happened. I mean, this is unprecedented, this act of horror, this atrocity that's happened. Well, that woman was from Bethlehem. And so Bethlehem had attached to it then this 
reputation as a place of tragedy, as a place of sadness. You know, very similar to maybe how we think of Columbine. You know, when you hear the city Columbine, Colorado, what do you think of? Well, that, that mass shooting back in 1999, those two guys who killed, I don't remember how many, 12, 13 students. Anytime you hear Columbine, you just get kind of sad in your heart because you think of that event. That's the way it was with Bethlehem. People just thought sadness because of this event and, and some other things that have happened uh, in, that, in that town. Here's the place where the Messiah is going to come, a small place and a sad place. Now, why would God do it that way? I mean, what we learn here is something very significant about the way God does things. I mean, number one, he's totally unpredictable. So when we talk about planning for the future, very hard to know what God is going to do, right? He, he does things in ways that defy our expectations, this is how God works, not according to our plan, not according to our desires and our expectations, not in a way which meets our desires. What God normally does all throughout scripture is he works through weak, sad, tragic, broken down people and events, and he works great things through them. That's what he does. Where did God begin to build Israel? From Abraham, a pagan. He wasn't some good religious God follower. He was a pagan. Who did he choose to lead his people out of Egypt? Moses, a guy who said, I don't even know how to speak. I can't publicly speak. How's he going to lead a people? That's who God wanted to use to free his people. David, they need someone to fight the giant. Goliath, David, they don't even think of David. He's the youngest of the brothers. He's the least likely to be able to succeed at this. And God says, that's my man. That's who I want to use. How about Paul? Who's God going to use to take the gospel to the Gentiles? A guy who is a persecutor of the church. <laughs> and he takes Paul and has him write the majority of the New Testament that we consider sacred scripture today. Do, do you see how God works? He works through smallness. He works through weakness. He works through sadness. He works through tragedy. That's where God is present. And maybe you think of your life as a life of sadness. Maybe that's how you'd characterize your experience. Just one disappointment after another. You never get what you want. You're constantly facing disappointment. Your life's been sad, or you think your life is small. You're insignificant. You don't have anything to offer. You don't have talents. You don't have gifts. You're not smart. You're not good looking. And you just think to yourself, I'm small. I'm insignificant. Man, you know what? I can't wait to see what great thing God does through you. You small, sad person. <laughs> because you're the kind of person God uses. That's the way God works. And you might not see it right now. And I'm sure the audience of Micah couldn't see it either. What? Bethlehem? A ruler coming? I'm sure they just couldn't comprehend, but that's exactly what happened. And here's how Paul sums it up in 1 Corinthians. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. You know, you didn't have anything by worldly standards that would commend you to the work of God, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. And he chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. That he might get all the glory in the work that he does through weak people 
like us. I, I think we, we can take that from what Micah is saying here about Bethlehem. But there's one other thing we need to consider, and that is the person. <clears throat> the person that Micah is predicting. Who is this person and what is he like? What is, what is special about this person? Verse 2, this person will be a ruler. We see that. He will be a ruler. He will be uh, a, a king. And um, he, he's going to be a king that's unlike any other king. You know, Israel and Judah have had lots of kings. This is going to be a, a different kind of king. But he'll be a king born in, in Bethlehem. But in verse 2, we see some more detail about what makes this king unique. And you see it there at the end. It says, one who is to be the ruler in Israel whose origin is from of old, from ancient days. From ancient days. You might remember Daniel chapter 7 talking about the coming son of man as the ancient of days. That, that's a common way of referring to the coming Messiah. But he, what, what this is saying is that he, he has an origin that goes way deep back into the past. In fact, I think what this is saying is he has an origin in where there actually is no beginning at all to him. Um, the uh, King James Version describes this verse or translates this verse as one who is from everlasting. The New American Standard says one from days of eternity. So what this is saying is that there is going to be this ruler who is from Bethlehem. He's going to be born in a town on earth. He's going to be a man but he's from eternity. That is, he's going to be God. There's going to be this Messiah who is going to be God and man at the same time. Now, who fits that description? <laughs> Other than the Lord Jesus Christ, the God-man. The beginning of the book of John, it says the Word was with God. The Word was God. The Word was God, but the Word became flesh. That means this God, creator of the universe, took on flesh. He took a human nature to himself when he was born in Bethlehem. He became a man but remained God and lived on this earth as the God-man. That's Jesus. And the reason that he took that human nature to himself, one, one reason is so that he could eventually lay it down in death on the cross to pay the penalty for sins. And after his death on the cross, the Father would raise him up in glorious resurrection so that we can now call him Lord of Lords and King of Kings, or ruler of rulers, we might say. This is a ruler unlike any other ruler. This is the king over all kings. This is the king who reigns over all presidents and dictators and leaders in the world. The King of Kings declared so by his resurrection from the dead. And that can happen because he takes on this human nature and lays down his life. But there's one other thing here that we can see about uh, this Savior, and, and it's this. The word Bethlehem actually means bread, bread of life. And Jesus, in his ministry, the God-man, comes and says, I am the bread of life. The ruler born in Bethlehem would come and offer bread to you. 
would offer you sustenance and satisfaction in this life. I loved it that we sang that song, Satisfied, just a little while ago, because that captures so much of what we're all longing for. I think wherever you are, whatever worldview you hold, whatever you believe, I think you'll agree with me that you are not quite satisfied. You're not quite satisfied. That there's a meaning that you're going after that you can't quite get. There's, there's a sense of emptiness. There's a sense of meaninglessness in this life. There's a sense of futility. You think there's something more. You're not sure what it is, but there's, a, there's an instinct deep down in you that says, it can't be just this. Life has got to be bigger than this. There's got to be something more important than just being happy and making money. There's a guy named Julian Barnes, atheist, who says, I don't believe in God, but I miss him. It's like, yeah, I'm, I'm too smart to be you know, a believer in God, but I kind of wish there were a God. That's what he's saying. Because in him is this longing for a sense of transcendence that we all hope for, that we all want. We want to know that we're here for a purpose. We want to know that our souls can be satisfied. C.S. Lewis said this, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. And that's true. And what Jesus is saying and what Micah is saying about this person born in Bethlehem, <clears throat> which means bread of life, this Jesus who comes and says, I am the bread of life. He says, he says, come and believe in me and trust in me and your soul will be satisfied and you'll never hunger and you'll never thirst. It doesn't mean everything's going to be right in your life. It doesn't mean you're going to have, not going to have doubts. It doesn't mean you're not going to feel empty from time to time. But you come to Jesus and you're going to see there is purpose. There, my, my guilt can be dealt with. My shame can be removed. I can know where I'm going in the future. I can know what my future is. Resurrection from the dead. Life eternal with our creator and with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Come to Jesus. Come to him as the bread of life. Give yourself to him and find that in him you can be satisfied. And you can know that that is something certain about your future. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the prophets. We thank you for the truth that you tell us. And uh, Lord, I do pray that you would cause us, God, to turn our hearts away from all false idols and find in you the satisfaction that you offer as our creator and our redeemer, as the Lord of lords and as the King of kings. In Jesus' name we pray.